This week, we're rebroadcasting an episode that we originally aired in February 2020 with banking law expert Mersa Baradaran and economic mobility expert Kate Blackford about the hidden costs of banking well poor. Whether it's the astronomical interest rates of a payday loan or the costs that come with being unbanked, banking well poor is extremely expensive. But there are steps to rein in the people who profit from it. For example, under mounting pressure from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Capital One recently ended overdraft fees, making them the largest bank to do so. Overdraft fees are one of the most pernicious examples of the vampire economy, in which financial institutions drain the accounts of the poor by weighing them down with relatively small fees and high interest rates. Hopefully, Capital One's example will put pressure on other big banks to end overdraft fees and other exploitive policies that prey on the poor. Predatory lending practices target the members of our community who have the fewest resources. And the problem is it's a death spiral for people, but it's an increasing returns phenomenon for the practitioners. It got worse in tandem with neoliberalism and deregulation of the banking sector. Keeping the poor poor is a great business strategy for people like payday lenders, but it's terrible for people and for economic growth. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Stephanie Irvin. I run a lot of our advocacy and campaign work here at Civic Ventures. You know, Nick, I think we spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about the ways that wealth compounds and accumulates and power thusly also compounds and accumulates. Because I think given your history and frankly the backgrounds of many folks in our office, we're just more accustomed and exposed to those realities. We experience the increasing returns aspects of privilege. Yeah, totally. Right? Like we are absolutely every day. And we're much less familiar with the trappings of poverty and yes. the ways that that cycle Disadvantages happens. compound totally at the same rate and in the same way that advantages compound. Yeah. Right. But because we're a gang of privileged suburban people, we haven't experienced a lot of those. That I think you're dead right. And so I thought it would be useful for us to actually look into one of the things that we recently started calling sort of vampires on the poor. Yeah. The vampire economy. The vampire economy, this sort of predatory lending space, which in and of itself is a product of what we always talk about, which is this neoliberal movement to suppress wages, to deregulate industry. Yeah. You know, and the more closely you look at these policies and practices and the businesses that, you know, that populate this space, uh, the clearer it becomes how highly tuned... They are to take advantage of weakness and to prey on, well, the the vulnerable. And it's actually worse than preying on the vulnerable because by preying on the vulnerable, they inevitably make the vulnerable even more vulnerable, (laughs) right? It's this crazy death spiral 
that they both animate and participate in that is kind of shocking and awful and and you know one of I suppose one of the reasons we try to do this work. Yeah, and until I started doing research for this specific episode, it didn't occur to me that the fact that I'm under 40 actually means that I've only lived in this reality, this <laughs> neoliberal reality. Yeah, right. And I didn't know in this space in particular in predatory lending that interest rates weren't always like this. That's in right. America or elsewhere. Right. That we didn't always have these really rapacious practices that just extract every right. last cent people have available to them. Yeah, for poor people. Like through payday lending, for right. instance, where the how how high can these interest rates go? Some go up to like five hundred and ten percent. Yes. Annually, just, which is just Yeah bonkers impossible yeah. to ever get out from under that's right and meanwhile somebody like me can take out a LIBOR loan at you know three percent or whatever is that true? it is <laughs> yeah for sure wow <laughs> yeah for sure. But so in American history we had for forever sort of traditional standard was like at 10 percent interest rates right. was sort of how loans in general of all makes and kinds operated yeah and then slowly especially around the late 1970s, yeah. early 80s, yeah. we started to really deregulate and allow more high-risk loans that came with really high interest rates. We're going to get to talk to some of the people, both some of the people who are working on solving this problem, but some people who actually have been victimized by some of these practices, which will be, uh, both of those things will be super interesting and informative. I'm really excited today to get to talk to Marissa Baradaran, uh, who is a professor of law and writes a lot about banking law, financial inclusion, inequality and the racial gap. And she's the author of How the Other Half Banks and also a new book called The Color of Money, uh, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. And she's done just amazing amounts of research on these issues and you know housing policy and redlining and uh, it should be just fascinating to talk to her about uh, the ways in which the financial system has been deregulated and has begun to prey on people. So I am Mesh Bredron. I work at UC Irvine School of Law. I have written many articles uh, and several books, two books about banking and inequality, um, more specifically racial inequality. I've done a couple of like policy proposals. I've consulted with a bunch of the left wing sort of, I guess, left progressive candidates and some non-progressives on policy. So I wrote recently 21st Century um, Homestead Act and I'm I've been doing a, a lot of sort of policy work slash just, you know, general consulting. So our podcast, of course, is dedicated to problems associated with inequality uh, and economics. But And you're an expert on inequality in the U.S. financial and banking system. So can you just sort of introduce that concept to our listeners and dimensionalize those issues? I mean, one of the things that sort of the progressives um, understood is that banking policy and credit policy is 
about democracy and about equality and just like much bigger than just that, banking and credit policy. And I think one of the things that happened in economics, specifically and the Milton Friedman sort of monetarist school is, and, and Greenspan, of course, but, but kind of deeper than that is to take the realm of monetary policy and banking policy out of the public forum, out of the democracy, and into uh, the Federal Reserve sort of like private backdoor meetings and into the, the realm of sort of macroeconomic thinking that is very hard to penetrate by the average person, right? So what you get is a lot of, oh, this is very complicated and only, you know, the quants can can understand this. But really what we're talking about when we're talking about banking policy, credit policy, monetary policy is allocation issues and redistribution. And these are democratic values, right? So when you have William Jennings Bryan going to the floor of the house, you know, saying um, you're crucifying us on a cross of gold, right? This was a monetary policy discussion. He was saying gold is killing the sort of common man, right? It was a man, of course, a farmer. Um, and silver or bimetallism is, is going to um, free up credit and, and lead to um, more equality. And, and we just don't have those debates anymore. We sort of left the gold standard. And we're now in this realm of money that is just ethereal. It is very sort of abstract. And yet, and, 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 and these decisions, you know, quantitative easing, or the repo market, the stuff that the Fed does, has huge distributional consequences, but there isn't a debate about it. Um, not just that, but you know, bank mergers or bank policy, it's, it's not something that we will ever hear. I mean, every uh, presidential debate, I joke like, oh, will they talk about you know, bank mergers or whatever? And everyone's like, well, who cares? And I'm like, you should care, right? Yeah. This, is, this is the stuff you are going to lose your bank. What happens when you lose your bank is you're going to have to go to a payday lender and a check casher, and that's going to affect your life way more than any of the other things that they talk about. I mean, not any, but a lot of the other things that they talk about. So that's sort of what what I think has been um, one of the outcomes of economics in the last sort of yeah, 30 years. Right. Yeah. And we call that neoliberalism, that the only legitimate organizing principle for a society is market competition. Yes. Uh, and that price is the only thing we should look to to decide if something is good or bad. You know, and all these associated ideas where, where we have sucked the important questions out of the debate about participation, inclusion, democracy, power, agency, human welfare, all of these things just got abstracted out, literally got, you know, but by the neoclassical economists just got divided out of the equations. <laughs> and so what you're left with yeah. is this set of ideas that largely became a protection racket for rich people and where the basic rubric was the richer they get, the better it will be for you which turned out not to be true. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But right, and this is even like beyond price, right? Cuz you can say, okay, well, the market determines price, but who decides the mechanism of price as in money? Like who the, the decisions that you make that end up determining price are also decisions that people make that even, you know, like heterodox economists aren't really I mean they are starting to now, but by the time you're talking about price, you're already past the point That's of right. the monetary system in general. <laughs> All the right? important decisions were made. <laughs> right. A right. lot of them were. That's right. Price is just an expression of power. 
The price you pay is determined by the power you have. And in a world where the powerful get more powerful, the price you pay will be higher, which is why uh, this was just a shocking statistic for families earning $25,000 a year, 10% of their income goes to paying for financial transactions. So that, that stat just blew our minds. Can you give that stat more dimension? Yes. So I will tell you a story. Um, I uh, study this stuff, and the last place I lived was in Georgia, and I went to go set up my water at this office in Georgia. And I got in, and there was this li- it was during lunch, and there was this line out the door, and um, I got in the line, and someone came from the back and recognized me as not one of the people that was should be online because there's class dimensions to this, you know, and um, pulled me back, and I set up my water, and I put it on auto pay. And as I'm leaving, I said, well, what is that line? And she says, oh, that's the people who come in to pay their bill in cash every month, right? And this is something I study. So I knew the numbers, but I hadn't connected that, oh, it's not just the cost that these people pay, but it's the time and the psychological stress of not being banked and having to go with cash to the water office to pay your water bill. And then with cash to pay your electricity bill and your a cell phone bill and your all of the other things that we all put on auto pay. When you're unbanked, you end up having to do a lot of this stuff with cash and then through money orders, right? So you can't send cash in the mail, so you have to go to get a money order. Where do you get a money order? You go and you have to pay for it, right? Where do you how do you get your paycheck put into cash? You have to go to a check casher, right? And they take off, you know, ten percent. And then you put it back into a money order and that's another ten percent, right? And so these are fees that are paid for exclusively by the poor and the un- who are the unbanked, right? The unbanked and the poor. And these are things that we get for free. And by the way, not just that, the other sort of added sort of salt on the wound is that we are actually, our services are subsidized by those who have to pay these fees. Right. So those who pay overdraft fees to banks subsidize my free checking essentially because I have enough money. The bank wants my big deposit because they can lend it out. They don't want your $1,000 deposit. So what they do is they keep throwing these random punitive fees at you. And so people who don't have enough money make a very rational decision to not have a bank account and to go to a check casher and and pay a fee that is very clear. It is the same fee to everyone. It's not random. So it's a very rational decision to go and, you know, go to a check casher and a payday lender. Now, some people don't have to, don't have a choice to make because banks have long deserted um, these areas that are not profitable. And so they, they actually have to go drive 30 miles to an ATM that's at a gas station where they pay $750 per transaction. Every time they take out $100, that's $750, right? Um, and me and you don't do that, right? Right. Wow. How new is this phenomenon? I mean, it, was there a state that was preferable in the past? And has it gotten worse or has it always been horrific? And It's gotten worse. And okay. it, 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 it got worse in tandem with neoliberalism and deregulation of the banking sector. Because what you had in the banking sector was forced geographic restrictions. And so for most all of U.S. banking history, from the beginning until about the 1980s or so, banks had to stay in one area. So if you had a branch, and I think you're from Seattle, right? If you had a Seattle branch, right, you could only have a Seattle branch. You couldn't also have a New York City branch tied to that Seattle branch, right? Why? Because this is, you know, Jeffersonian fear that if all banks 
if all the money can go to New York, it will go to New York because that's where the profits are, right? So all the money is going to get sucked into these money marketplaces, and then the rest of the country is going to be deprived of banking services and credit, which is essential to sort of economic mobility. So sometime in the 1980s, we were like, oh, banks are like any other corporation. Let's deregulate. And then, you know, the Rigel-Neal Banking Act and several other laws, you know, Gramm-Leach-Briley, just complete deregulation, which, by the way, spanned both the Bush, Clinton, and then the second Bush um, administrations, just completely deregulated the banking industry. And what was feared is exactly what happened, which is that all the money went to New York. You've got five or six, or New York or Chicago, wherever, you've got five or six banks that control 80% of the assets. And they're merging the latest merger, BB&T and SunTrust, um, created the fourth largest bank. And what, what BB&T and SunTrust is going to do immediately is they're going to shut down maybe, what, 50% of their branches because they're no longer profitable. And those are all in communities that aren't going to have a bank, probably. A lot of them are, are not going to have a bank. And so banks were local um, community banks, you know, the myth of the George Bailey Bank that we kind of talk about. They were that by law. Um, banking law forced them to be small and forced them to be local. And when we stopped forcing them, they just conglomerated and became these behemoths. There's a couple other laws also that enabled the rise of the payday lending and check cashing industry, which was the complete deregulation of usury, um, which is interest, right? It used to be that we had strict caps state by state. And in 1978, the Supreme Court, you know, sort of caught up in this wave of neoliberalism, just kind of lifted the caps that you can go to any state and export those rates, right? So now you've got states like Idaho and Utah and places in um, in the Midwest who have no interest rate caps. And so if you're a payday lender, you're going to go to that state and then you're going to lend everywhere else. So if you're a state like New York or Georgia that cares about payday lending actually and doesn't want that stuff in your state, you actually have a really hard time enforcing your own laws against those lenders. What are the other predatory practices of the financial services industry that are contributing to this problem? Can you help us understand those? I mean, there's a, a, a ton of sort of slow drip type things that I don't know if you would call it predatory, but you certainly, I mean, it's just extractive, right? So you're taking money from these communities. So, you know, you're, you're seeing the rebirth of contract lending in mostly black and brown communities where they come in, a bunch of private equity firms own up all their homes, and then they essentially give them like a quote-unquote mortgage that is essentially a contract on a house, which is you're paying as much as you would on a mortgage, but the private equity firm actually owns the land. And by the way, you're paying more than you would you know, if you had owned the house. That's something that historically has, has been something that black and brown communities have constantly been predated upon. We had some, some attention to the reverse mortgages um, during the financial crisis, but, but this is something that's, that's worse. I mean, student, student lending, um, you know, I know you've talked about um, on your uh, program, but that's, that's a, you know, for-profit colleges, that's like an obvious one. And then there's just the little drip, drip, right, the overdraft fees that just kind of pile up or the payday lender sort of, you know, fees and insurance products. Um, the most recent sort of ballooning of debt right now is like auto loans and consumer finance loans, right? These are the sort of next debt crisis. And, and there's a whole variety of things, right, that it's causing this. Mostly people aren't making enough money to live, and so they have to take out money to make, you know, their rent. And so um, you're seeing a lot of things pop up in states where 
let's say payday lending isn't legal, like in Georgia, you see title lending. And title lending is even worse, right? Because you, you lose your car, you're paying just as much, and then they will put a thing on your car with it, with, they'll freeze it. You, you aren't even able to use your car to get to work because they sort of kind of have that as collateral. So, I mean, there's a variety of these debt products that you and I don't know about, yeah, <laughs> right? right. Um, no, yet, yet they're just like really prevalent um, in, in these areas. And you know, I've spent time, you know, sitting with payday lenders at pawn shops and just watching the people come in the door. And, and what's shocking to me, and I know you've talked about it a lot on your show, is, is that these are not, quote, unquote, poor people. They're, quote, unquote, the middle class, right? These are, you the know, um, single moms, right? Yes. You know, single moms who will pawn. Um, and this is what one pawn shop guy told me, you know, this woman had been in and pawned her laptop over and over and over again. And and the pawn shop doesn't want the laptop. They want the fees on the loan. Sure. Right? So they make money on the interest rate. But that mom is losing her laptop every, you know, couple of months periodically because she needs a loan. And so I, I don't know what she can't do with her laptop, but I do a lot on my laptop. So I'm thinking it's a burden on her to not have that laptop during that time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, for sure. You know, I'm always of two minds about this stuff. You know, on the one hand, we need to push back against these exploitive policies and regulations. On the other hand, the way to solve it is just to pay people enough so they don't need these services, right? Like, you right, know, like right. there is a really simple answer to, to how to solve these problems, which is just to pay people more. And then you don't need a pay laid loan, you know? <laughs> right? Like, uh, on the other hand, you also want to go after the most pernicious practices. As I was thinking about the conversation that you and I were going to have, I was trying to think through what kind of regulation changes we should enact to make the economic system, to make the financial services industry, you know, just sort of fairer to all citizens. Do you have a sense of what we should do? Like if you were dictator for the day, what would you do? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love this question because I constantly think about being dictator for the day <laughs> or for the month. I'll take it yeah. for the year. Um, I mean, look, I think we have a lot of myths when it comes to banking and credit policy, and um, these myths end up standing in the way of real reform. And one of the myths that I've been going after, and this is one that takes hold of the left and the right, is this idea that we're going to kind of come back to the day where community banks are going to save us, right? The small grassroots, good banks, right? And, and the credit union was a great idea in the early 20th century, right? And in the 19s or 10s when it was formed. But that genie has sort of left that bottle. So stop pining for these long, you know, gone um, eras and, and, and go for what, what we're actually trying to achieve. What was the point of the credit union in these small banks? And it was to equalize access to credit, because it's not just about how much you get paid, but it's your access to get a mortgage, which is wealth building, and get a student loan that's not going to crush you. Low interest loans actually end up building wealth in the same way that high incomes do, right? So you talked about getting paid more, but I also think credit is really important, the right kind of credit. Credit can be very wealth building. And so my, you know, dictator for the day idea is to do, you know, public option and banking. I've suggested 
you know, the postal bank as an idea of getting, you know, all those areas that don't have banks, just like go to your local post office and get a checking account there, have an ATM and not pay, you know, 10% of your income to use your money. It's been called a radical idea. You know, when I proposed it, it was like, oh, this is crazy. But we did this in the U.S. from 1910 to 1966. We had a robust postal banking sector. It just makes sense. The other is to just actually call banking what it is, which is a public utility. So if I'm going big and dramatic is, look, you have this monetary policy uh, mechanism by the Federal Reserve that pumps money into the economy. And the way that we've chosen to do it is to pump the money into banks and hope that it trickles down. Right? This is other aspect of trickle-down economics is to give the banks incentives. Like quantitative easing was just padding the bank's balance sheets, right? Or um, interest on reserves. We actually pay banks money to park their money at the Federal Reserve. It just sounds crazy, but we do it because the hope is that they'll pass that along, and they're not. They're not passing it along. Right. So just give it directly. Create a way for the Federal Reserve to actually do the thing that it was meant to do, which is to promote egalitarian access um, to both payments and the credit system, which are now monopolized by banks. So that's my dictator for the day, banking solution. For sure, using the post office as a way to provide people with these basic financial services. It's a really interesting idea. Could a state do something like this? Do you know any examples of states that have done something interesting? Because at Civic Ventures, we're always looking for these opportunities. Yeah. So North Dakota has a public bank. Um, it's the only state that does it. And, and what they do is that they use their public bank for municipal funding, student loans, mortgage loans, big loans, not deposits. But they, it's been a very successful public bank. And it's a very conservative state. So bipartisan, they've, they've done it really well. Um, California just passed a bill in the legislature that is opening up the legislature to applications for public banks. So these will be local banks and cities that have a specific sort of you know mission that they want to do that they can apply. We don't have one yet, but I've, I'm working with a couple groups to maybe think about that. So there are state-level things. The benefit of having it be federal is that you have a federal reserve that it that can basically print money, sure. essentially. I mean, not, not at a maximum, but like, you know, you really can do lots of creative things. And then the treasury backing, you know, you have the full faith and credit of the federal government, which allows you to do actually more safe banking and have it backstopped by the treasury, the way that the FDIC fund is backstopped by the treasury. So the reason we all trust banks with our deposits is because the treasury essentially says, we're good for it. And we believe the Treasury because it's never defaulted before. So that's the benefit of federal. That is not to say that a state could not also mobilize resources and do it. For sure, as we think about cracking these problems, what seems to be the case is that federal action rarely isn't preceded by a bunch of experiments in cities and states where people have done cool and interesting and effective things that then can be translated into larger federal programs. I'm just intrigued by the idea 3.5% of people in Seattle, uh, Bellevue, are unbanked. So unbanked is don't have a bank account, and then underbanked is probably a bigger percentage. I would put that probably around 11 Twelve percent, something like that, and that's probably those are people who maybe have a relationship with the bank, but that's not what they're using primarily. You know, one of the things I think uh, policymakers and sort of the, the academy who doesn't understand poverty tends to say is like, oh, well, they just need financial education, and 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 the thing that really gets under my skin about that is that 
that all the studies show that poor people actually know where every dollar is going because you have to, right? You're, yeah. You know, one mistake can cost you a lot of money, which you don't have. But I, I do think financial education is really important for the policymakers and for the academics who have never spent any time being poor and, and don't in a line to pay all... their water bill in cash. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, and, and they just assume that being poor is being them with less money. Yes. And it's not. It's a whole ecosystem of other things. There's exposure. There's vulnerabilities that they just don't know. I mean, the, outside the realm of this conversation is it's exposure to violence and, and the lack of recourse. You know, so there's all these things that, you know, are involved that I think um, p- policymakers could have a course in financial education for <laughs> poverty. Yeah. So interesting. Well, we always ask this question of all of our guests, which is why do you do this work? I do this work because I think the stories and the myths that we tell about the economy, about, you know, simple things like banks, credit, the bootstrapism end up affecting people's lives. I think there's a lot of shame and just emotions wrapped up in money and class. And I, 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 you know, I've lived poor, I've lived middle class. um, And I I know uh, that when you're poor, you don't want to talk about this stuff. You know, I I am taking the privilege that I have now as a no longer poor person to try to to demystify and to to take the shame out of um, some of these, these effects. Because I think most poor people are actually doing making the best decisions that they that they can. And I think the wealthy don't understand that. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Likewise. Talk soon. Okay. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. So Nick, you got to have this great conversation with Marissa, really at the high level of sort of what's happening, maybe some solutions and what can be done. Um, But now we get to talk to this fascinating woman, Kate Blackford, who's on the ground in Colorado and actually was the campaign co-chair of this 2018 initiative that dramatically reduced what payday lending um, companies could charge as interest rates. Yeah, it'll be be fun to talk to her. Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear about uh, that campaign and what they did to win. Yeah. My name is Kate Blackford, and I am the Director of Outreach for the Bell Policy Center. I lead the Financial Equity Coalition, and I also had the privilege of serving as the co-chair of the Proposition 111 campaign. Yeah, so let's dive right into it. Proposition 111 was aimed at predatory lending, the payday lending industry. Tell us about it and get, you know, just sort of give listeners perspective. So Proposition 111 here in Colorado passed in 2018 by more votes than any citizen initiative ballot measure in the history of Colorado. Holy crap. We won by yeah, we won by 77%. We won with over 1.8 million votes and it absolutely showed that Colorado voters are hungry for this kind of consumer protection. What the campaign did was it capped the interest rates on predatory payday loans at 36% inclusive of the fees and that ended triple digit interest rates on small dollar loans that were tied to borrowers' bank accounts in Colorado. Previously, we had passed reforms back in 2010 after a few years of effort, and that capped interest rates at 45% and then extended the minimum loan term from two weeks to six months. So that did a lot. It 
brought interest rates down from over 400%, but it still meant that payday loans on average were charging 129% APR when you included the origination fees and the monthly maintenance fees. Wow. Sometimes that was up to 214% APR on those small dollar loans. Can you zoom out a little bit and try to paint a broader picture of what the issues and what the problems are? Because I know you you understand it really well. We understand a little bit about it. But just tell us about predatory lending and the payday loan industry and the ways in which it, the degrees to which it harms poor people. Predatory lending practices target the members of our community who have the fewest resources and the lowest or smallest cushions. Um, these loans, just the payday loans in Colorado, they were stripping over $50 million a year out of the Colorado economy from the households that were least able to afford it. And the way that these loans were designed was to make sure that you were trapped in a cycle of debt, that more often than not, you got a new payday loan to pay off your previous payday loan because the interest rates and fees were so high. And so it meant that people were not able to build financial stability and instead were trapped in cycles of debt. How pervasive is it? How big a problem is this? In Colorado, these payday loan shops were concentrated especially around our military bases yeah. and in our lower income communities and our communities of color. They were both in rural and urban parts of Colorado, and they were especially targeting those folks who were on fixed income or were at the sort of lower end of the economic spectrum. But they were not just here, say, in Denver. They were statewide. I'm just going to ask the obvious question, which is why limit the interest rate to 36% instead of sort of getting rid of payday lenders entirely? So 36% is actually the state usury limit for Colorado. So that means that for the most part, loans in Colorado must charge 36% APR or less. And so what Proposition 111 did is put payday loans in line with um, the state usury cap. And included any fees in that calculation of the APR. Now, unfortunately, Colorado has pretty strict rules around how you write laws and um, and propose ballot measures. And so we could only do one single subject, which meant that we couldn't go after all different areas of lending statutes in Colorado, but we had to just pick one. Right. Yeah, we have the same. I mean, th- this is quite a sensible provision in initiative language to make sure they're not confusing to people. We have the same standards here in Washington state. And so I guess my question is, when you enacted these changes, what happened to the industry? Of course, they must have fought you like crazy. Actually, we had kind of a strange experience with the industry here in Colorado. So they absolutely fought us while we were working to get on the ballot. They tried to use confusing ballot language so that we would have to refer to them as deferred deposit loans rather than what they're known as, which is payday loans. They also helped fund a decline to sign campaign trying to prevent us and other measures from getting onto the ballot by collecting enough valid signatures. But then once we made it to the ballot, we kept expecting fire and 
really like broad media campaigns and we never got it. We were kind of looking over our shoulder from the time we qualified until election day and it never came. Interesting. That's I mean, they may have looked at the polling and said, well, this is hopeless. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think what they decided to focus on instead is how to work around okay. this limit. What we're finding anecdotally is that payday lenders have moved into a different section of state statute and are doing installment loans instead, which have a higher dollar limit, um, but also have really high allowable APRs. And they're not secured by a borrower's bank account. So they're not technically a payday loan. And so we think that they've moved into that space. We're working with the attorney general's office to try and collect data on increases in installment lending in Colorado since then. But if you do a quick Google search for payday loans or installment loans in Colorado, you find all the former payday lenders offering installment loans. And so we're trying to understand if that really is the direction that they headed. But that's why this campaign was really structured as part of a longer-term strategy. Proposition 111 went after one bad practice, but we didn't magically create universal access to safe and affordable credit, and that's really the goal. So we are continuing to work on how do we get to the place where we don't need predatory lending in Colorado, and there really isn't a market for it. Right. Of course, the reason that most people need to use these services is their employers don't pay them enough money to get by without them. <laughs> so, the, yep. yeah, so uh, reasonable wages cure almost all Ill of these ills, you know, which is part of the foundational argument we make in the podcast that if we had an economy which uh, compensated people reasonably for their work, so many of the pathologies of not just the economy, but of, um, our democracy and society would would uh, melt away. But beyond that, tell us more about what are the other awful practices that you know that companies use to prey on poor people in this in this domain. Oh, there are so many. Unfortunately, um, there are a whole host of other predatory financial products that are out there and other ways in which consumers really need uh, stronger protections. There are a lot of auto loans that are really predatory, especially the buy here, pay here places. Um, the installment lenders like One Main are definitely charging ridiculously high interest rates. Uh, debt buyers and default wage garnishment are also preying on Coloradans. For us, we really think that fighting them begins with robust data collection on the loans that they're issuing, the impacts of those loans and judgments and other actions and the trends across their industries, because that data was what helped us fight for the initial reforms that passed in Colorado in 2010 and were hugely important to the 2018 ballot fight. We need to show how broad these issues are and how deep the impacts of these predatory lending products. But at the same time, we are absolutely working to connect with not only existing financial institutions like banks and credit unions, but also with the communities that were a huge part of this campaign and beyond who are the primary targets of these predatory lenders and talk with them about what's working and what's not working in our existing financial system and how do we create really robust universal access to safe and affordable credit and what does that look like in Colorado? So does that speak to, I mean, are you guys working on actual alternative products that would replace for low-income people the need to get payday loans? 
So here in Colorado, as in many other parts of the country, we have a two-tiered financial system where some Coloradans get access to safe and affordable banking and credit. Usually those are white Coloradans and better off economically, um, Coloradans or Coloradans who are better off economically. But a huge portion of our population, especially our black and brown neighbors, are not served by those systems and they pay a whole lot more for their banking and credit services. We don't just want to make that second tier better and more affordable. We really want to eliminate the market for a second tier in the financial services industry. And so we are talking with people instead of about what alternative loans or financial products we can create, we're talking instead about how do we combine an expansion of safe and affordable bank accounts with free one-on-one financial coaching, which really centers the participants' goals and the skills that they want to develop with resources to access credit building loans and help increase uh, people's credit scores. And we've seen evidence and data that at the municipal level, this has really had a tremendous impact on decreasing debt, increasing savings, raising credit scores, and increasing increasing financial stability. And so we're working right now on how can we expand that locally-led, locally-implemented model that's really tailored to local needs statewide. So are you speaking to a specific example that exists already in Colorado? We are. So the Bell Policy Center has been partnering with a number of folks from the Financial Equity Coalition and the Cities for Financial Empowerment Fund. They previously have supported the city of Denver in the creation of an Office of Financial Empowerment. And that's really what got our juices flowing around this idea of seeing the data around Denver's successes, as well as other cities around the country where They've been able to increase financial stability, decrease debt, and increase savings. So we're exploring whether or not that model really holds water in other communities. And the responses that we're getting are really supportive. People are saying yes, that they would like to see this done in slightly different ways with slightly different priorities in different communities around the state. As important as it is to recognize that these you know, practices, whatever, you know, these products, these, these predatory products harm, you know, the most vulnerable people, poor people. The broader issue is that more and more Americans find themselves in financial precarity, that financial precarity used to be a thing that afflicted the bottom two deciles of Americans. And now it's a thing that afflicts the bottom seven, eight, or nine deciles of Americans, that, that there are a huge proportion of, of American families that can't afford a three or $400 emergency that basically are, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, um, barely hanging on. And, and if you let these predatory practices stand, it creates a, essentially a death spiral, right? Because more and more people get sucked into these systems of predation and it affects a bigger and bigger swath of the economy and and the problem is it's a death spiral for people but it's an increasing returns phenomenon for the practitioners because the more people who need these services and the more people who get sucked into it the bigger those 
businesses and practices become and the more politically powerful they become. And before you know it, half the population is using loan sharks, uh, which is essentially what these people are to get by. And so it's a very dangerous practice to let stand. You definitely don't want it to exist in the economy and you want to probably squish it out of existence so that you can uh, find ways to help people economically that aren't this sort of malicious way of just taking advantage of them. To me, that's the really big issue. I completely agree. I completely agree that any of the work we're doing around financial stability hopefully will help people weather life storms, but we are not solving our wage crisis with these initiatives. Right. We're hopefully helping create some stability and helping people save a little bit for emergencies and mean that when something comes up, they can manage it rather than being left devastated. Yeah. But absolutely, the major forces at play in our economy are not going to be righted through these particular systems alone. Yeah. And what's super scary to me is that if you let these businesses get big enough, before you know it, Bank of America will be in it. We know that major banks were often the ones providing the credit for the payday loans. Yeah, for sure. You know, like it just, it's very, it's very, very dangerous to let these things get out of control. They're already out of control. It feels a little like payday lenders or sort of predatory lenders writ large are really outrunning the regulations that we create. Is there a way that we can be better at outrunning them? Like what's the next, if you take on installment loans, what's after installment loans? Or what? how do we get in front of their ability to sort of recreate themselves? It's amazing, their ability to find loopholes. I mean, even if we had all of the regulations we needed at the state level around all of these issues, there are federal loopholes to circumventing state powers and state laws. And so that's one of the reasons that we're so focused on how do we make sure that we're competing at the market level, that we're offering robust and safe, affordable alternatives for consumers, because we don't think that we're going to be as sneaky and tricky and able to get out in front of every fintech or predatory lending product that's going to try and come into our space. Well, thanks for spending time with us today. One thing that we ask all of our guests is, why do you do this work? What drives you? Do you know the Paul Wellstone quote, we all do better when we all do better? Mm -hmm. So right now, our economy feels rigged and how hard it is to lead even a middle class life is so real. But I don't believe it has to be that way. And I want to be part of that change. That's a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Thank you so much for spending time with us. Super interesting. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on your success. And I hope you have more. Absolutely. And if you all are working on ways to get out in front of these folks, keep me posted. Okay. Yes. We want to be in touch. We like the breadth of work that you're doing at the Bell Policy Center and would love to talk more about that. Absolutely. Anytime. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. You too. Bye. When we talk about things like payday loans, I have never had that experience. And I really wanted to talk with someone who did. So we went and found this great guy, Demetrius, who actually took out a payday loan and can tell us about his story and experience afterwards. 
My name is Demetrius Johnson, and I've worked in finance for 20 years or so now. It's a kind of a non-traditional route to finance, and so my story, I think, is a little atypical from most payday lenders. I was um, advised that I was soon to be laid off from a company, and um, you know, I kind of foresaw a gap in pay that was, you know, going to be coming up, and I said, oh, kind of got to prepare myself and. I had some money in savings that I didn't want to tap into, and I knew that I was going to have to you know, take unemployment, so I was kind of taking steps and preparing myself because the company that I had worked for had already gone through two series of layoffs, and they kind of put us on notice, as it were. And so I said, all right, well, let me start getting things together. And um, one of the things that I did was I took a payday loan. You know, I was familiar with payday loans in that I've known people that had taken them, and I, I you know... I was kind of warned a little bit about them, but I just kind of walked in there and I said, you know, it's 500 bucks. It's not a whole lot of money. I didn't think that I was going to have a hard time finding another job. I took the payday loan. It was pretty easy to get. It was like a one page application. What they said was that it was a $500 loan and that if I um, paid within 30 days that it would be, I think it would ended up being like 725 total. And I got to thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's pretty high for, you know, what would be 30 days. And then they said, well, yeah, you know, you can, you can make payments on it and what have you. But what they neglected to inform me was that, you know, the interest would continue to accrue at a very, very high rate, a triple digit rate. That was not very transparent. Based on the calculation, based on the way that they have things set up, there is a way in which you can end up paying on these payday loans for quite some time. It's difficult when making the minimum payment to defeat the rate of interest that's being applied. So very similar to credit cards, but to a greater degree. You know, it's not one of those things that can positively affect your credit in any way. They don't report to any credit agencies, and not positively anyway. They only report negatively. So when you don't pay, then, of course, they report you. But your payments that you make towards them don't really help you at all credit-wise. What ended up happening was I was kind of denied my unemployment ultimately, and then I wasn't able to find a job fast enough to make the first payment. And so I said, all right, well, maybe I will, you know, what I'll have to do is start living off of some of my retirement money, you know, until I find a job. And so I started pulling money out of uh, retirement assets and, um, you know, I subject to child support and things like that. And so that payday loan was not necessarily the highest priority, the child support and, and you know, paying bills and things um, were kind of the highest priority. And then what ended up happening was, you know, put on my credit. And then it was sent to an attorney. And then, you know, it had been on my credit for, for quite some time. And I think it may still be on there. Because I work in finance, it became difficult for me to become gainfully employed in the career field of, you know, of choice. I got offers at, you know, Fidelity and other firms. But then, you know, you have a ding like that on your credit. And it's a financial ding, like for a loan or whatever. And they're like, no, we're not going to touch you. And I'm like, well, you know. That's kind of why I'm looking for this job so that <laughs> so that I can pay bills and things like that. And so it was kind of one of those catch-22 situations where, you know, I'm attempting to pay off some debt, but because of the type of career field that I'm in, the further I got into to debt, the more difficult it became for me to find a job in my career field. You know, it just kind of snowballed into something that I'm just now recovering from. <laughs> so... 
it's it's been challenging. It's you know five hundred dollars ended up costing me quite a bit. I will never ever ever take out another payday loan ever again. There are so many other alternatives to payday loans um, that people can utilize and should be made aware of. The company itself was just not very transparent and. The effect that it had on me, I was like, wow, like if this could happen to me, it could happen to anybody. So those were fascinating conversations with uh, activists, policy uh, thinkers and leaders, and uh, a person who was um, actually personally intersected with the whole vampire economy. And it's just really unbelievable. It's really clear that Keeping the poor poor is a great business strategy for people like payday lenders, but it's terrible for people and for economic growth. And I think all Americans have a stake in trying to make it hard for these financial predators to continue to exist. One thing that came up in your conversation with Mersa is this statistic about families that are earning $25,000 or less and that every year they spend about 2400 on financial transactions. So more than they spend on food. It's just they're spending on banking fees and overdraft fees and other it's bullshit. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just it's 10% of their income goes to nonsense like this and it does come down to like just incredibly simple things that the fee on an ATM machine is, what is it, three bucks every time? And if you take out 20 bucks, it's 15%, right? right? And when you look at even the more like specifically predatory practices, things like payday lending that we got to talk with Kate about, over 12 million Americans annually take out payday loans. 12 million Americans costing them $9 billion in loan fees. <laughs> it's just crazy. I mean, payday loans have become the face of predatory lending because of this practice, right? They go into low-income neighborhoods. They can act like they're not targeting specific folks. Yeah. But they go into low-income neighborhoods and open up a storefront. As Demetrius told us, you can go in for five minutes and walk out the same day with the cash that you need to pay an emergency bill or just cover the rent that month. And people who need that kind of access to available capital quickly have one of these things as their only options. Yeah. The other thing I learned from Demetrius, I mean, I asked him, did you have other options available to you? Because certainly in my life, if I was short a few bucks, I wouldn't think about going to a payday lender. I'd think about going to my parents, (laughs) mom and dad, or I'd think about going to a really close friend or other family member and asking for sort of a short term, can you help me out? Yeah, there were probably 10 or 20 good options you had before you got to a payday lender. And I asked Demetrius if he had considered those options or had those options available to him, and he shared with me that he was the guy in his family who other people went to for that. So So you can imagine not only when Demetrius went down his own death spiral after taking a payday loan and had his own ability and path towards financial stability get really ruined for a long period of time, but also the entire social network of people who rely on Demetrius to be their guy when they're in a hard spot. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's just really troubling that we allow these kinds of practices to continue. Right. And you said at the start of the show, but I completely agree, we need to do absolutely everything we can, not just to raise wages and make it so 
folks have the kind of income they need to not need not loans. need things like <laughs> yeah. payday loans yeah. or paying right. or will be subject to overdraft yeah. fees and all the rapacious right. practices on the back end. But we also need to really rein this shit in. Yeah. I mean, we have regulations for a reason. Yeah. And the problem is, is, you know, the, the neoliberal view would be that people are rational calculators of their self-interest, that people, I mean, neoclassical economists literally believe that people have infinite willpower and, you know, can see the future and predict the future and do Bayesian analysis of risk and return and all this crazy stuff. And the truth is that that's not what people are like at all. People make emotional short-term decisions when they're under pressure. Uh, We all do it. And if your range of options is narrow and crappy, you will almost certainly make a crappy decision, which which will force you in the future, as it did in Demetrius's case, to make even other crappy decisions in a downward spiral that is very, very d- difficult to get out of. And I think you when know, you only have crappy options, yeah, you, you can make only make crappy, crappy decisions. decisions, right? And you know, the role of regulation is to is to eliminate crappy options, right? <laughs> right, and to substitute crappy options with good options. Yeah, and there's a pushback in the payday lending space in particular that if we didn't have payday lenders, low-income people would have no ability, no access to capital at all. And I think there's some substance to that argument, yeah. but lo and behold, there are hundreds of years in our own American history where we actually didn't yeah. just have legally rapacious right. ways right. to take and, total and, advantage and if we made of people. the worst practices illegal, I guarantee you that somehow capitalists would find a way to serve these people without being as rapacious and awful. Right. So. And thankfully, we have people like Mersa and others who are yeah. developing and innovating other solutions that would really allow low-income people access to products that better serve them and our economy. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I mean, the people who used to make canned food argued for a long time that it was implausible to require them not to... Uh, poison you with botulism and stuff like that. Uh, And that if we held them to that standard, no canned food would be available, but somehow magically (laughs) uh, you can have a can of tuna fish or whatever it is today and not get botulism. And, you know, we could have lending to poor people that wasn't as predatory and, um, and awful as it is today. Yeah. Something to think about and work on. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.